0: Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously.
1: All right. Today, if you're brand new, you picked a great Sunday to show up here because this is the last series, last of our series on the book of Revelation. You missed all of the weird stuff, and now we're in to the two best chapters in all of the Bible. All right, before we dive in, though, I want to remind us of the beginning of the whole biblical story. So we're going to start in Genesis today. Not surprisingly, Genesis 1 begins thusly. In the beginning, God created the what? The heavens and the earth. Now, the heavens... That isn't some place way far away. For for the Hebrews, the heavens were just uh, up there. Just all around us. And the earth wasn't the globe. They didn't have any image that the earth is a globe. But the earth was just the land. So in the beginning, God created what's up there and what's down here. Nothing more than that. Next. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and that, that implies deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over those waters. Now, in the ancient Near Eastern imagination, deep waters were a picture of chaos and disorder. It's a place where evil dwelled. And so we're going to see God, in the form of this kind of hovering spirit, do something with this chaotic waters, right? We'll study Genesis sometime next year. But I just want you to get in your mind that the waters here represent chaos and disorder. Later on in, in the same chapter, excuse me, later on in chapter 2, we begin to read about the creation of human beings. All right, and, and, and the human beings live in this place called the garden. The Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. Now the man here doesn't mean male. It means an undifferentiated human. Okay, he doesn't differentiate until male and female later in Genesis 2, but here it's just the human being he created. He puts them in the garden. Oh, go back. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, and there he put the man he had formed. Great. Next, the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were two trees in particular. What's the first one? The tree of life. And the other one was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Next, a river, and this becomes a super important image later, a river watering the entire garden, flowed from eden and there it separated into four headwaters and he lists what those are next the lord god took the man and put him in the garden of eden to do what work it and take care of it now in genesis 1 we're told that the vocation of the humans is to rule over the earth the created order here we're told That the vocation of the humans also includes working and take care of it as we've commented before those are worship words that are used of the temple priests later in the story so the humans have a worship vocation a priestly vocation and they have a royal vocation to rule and reign right and these are just images to keep in mind as we get later in the story now Tim and Stephanie read this text from Isaiah The prophets had a way of talking about the ultimate hope of what God was going to do sometime in the future. I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. Eden means delight. So the idea is that Jerusalem will now be, in some sense, what the garden was intended to be for humanity. These are little glimpses that are kind of dripped through the story. You read in the New Testament some references to new heavens and new earth, but obviously it's not until Revelation that we get the fullness of the fulfillment of those images that have been in the Scripture prior. Now, we're just going to read... Chapters 21 and 22, and we're going to make some comments. And then we're going to have a big old conversation about what that means. And then we'll do some questions, like we always do. Um, The text line, if you want to text in questions, is not that. But the text line usually is on there. And then if you want, uh, you can raise your hand and ask questions too. I I had the greatest experience last week when a, a very young woman, probably late teens, came up to me. And she, she looked at me and said, I disagree with you. I think the numbers in Revelation are literal and not as symbolic as you're saying. And, and my first thought was, well, there are lots of people that would agree with you. My second thought was, how cool is it that a young person and a young woman would feel comfortable talking to the old white guy on the stage and telling him he's wrong? Right? I thought that was great. Oh, thank you, Susie. Susie feels that a lot too. And so it's a general sentiment. But the reason we do the whole question thing is so that that happens. So that someone like that, who's engaging and thinking and wrestling with the text, would say, ah, I'm not sure I buy it. And that's okay. So we have lots of ways that people can ask and discuss. We do discussion here. Kevin hosts a confab in the lounge afterwards to talk about this. And then we do a podcast once a week to talk about some of the questions we didn't get to. So all of that is welcome. That's what we're going to do. Fifteen minutes, we're going to read every word of Revelation 21 and 22. Giddy up. Fire it up, David. Let's go, baby. Then I saw a what? Now, well read brothers and sisters, with joy and enthusiasm. Now, the word new here is really important. There are, you're dying to know, two Greek words for new, neos and kenos Neos means new in time, entirely new, a newborn, something that hadn't been here before. Kenos is new in kind, renewed. Kainos is used here meaning There's an old image uh, from the teaching of Revelation that I received back in the day that the earth is just going to be destroyed and God's going to start over. That's not the image here. God isn't making all new things. He's making all things new. He's renewing. So the heavens and earth are being renewed. Make sense? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now instantly, if you've got your Jewish ears on, well, that's Isaiah. Right? And other passages earlier. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any what? Any water, any sea. Now again, you're like, okay, so God hates surfers? Nope. (laughs) Nope. What's that symbolizing? The removal of chaos, disorder. Remember, earlier in Revelation, the beasts arose from the sea. So this is the elimination of anything that prevents human flourishing. Now, there are so many Old Testament callbacks. I'm just going like, to mention them in passing just to overwhelm you with how many Old Testament callbacks there are. One of the things we've been saying about the book of Revelation is it's nothing new. It's the entire day of the Lord story wrapped around the slain lamb. That's the revelation that God conquers by sacrificing himself. And that his church conquers in the same way. That's the big revelation. So there isn't new stuff here. This is the fulfillment of all the things that have been promised. So there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Remember, we've read about the evil city, Babylon. And now we read about the new city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a what? As a bride. So Babylon was called the great prostitute. Jerusalem is called the bride. Beautifully dressed for her husband. This is an image from Isaiah 61. And I saw a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. That's from Zechariah 2. They will be his people, Zechariah 8, and God himself will be with them and be their God. That's Leviticus 26, Ezekiel 11, and Ezekiel 37. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. That's from Isaiah 25. There will be no more death. Remember, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the last enemy to be defeated is death. That's from Isaiah 25 as well. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. It's from Isaiah 25, 35, and 65. For the old order of things has passed away. We just read that from Isaiah 65. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making, this is my favorite sentence in the entire Bible. I am making everything new. Ah. Oh. Write this down for these words are worthy and true. That's a statement from Daniel 2 and 8. Stephanie? He said to me, It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Remember, God announces in chapter 1 he's the Alpha and Omega, and here at the end he announces he is the Alpha and Omega. Those statements bookend the whole book. I'm the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. This is from Isaiah 44 and 48. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost, that's Isaiah 55, a direct quote, from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this. Now remember, victorious is the word conquered. Right, when, when, when Jesus speaks to the seven churches, he said to those who overcome, to those who conquer, this is what they will inherit and this is the fulfillment of that. I will be their God, they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Cool, we covered that last week. This is the second death. They're not allowed into the city, in other words. One of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high, this is an image from Ezekiel, and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It's shown with the glory of God, Isaiah 60, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were the names of the 12 tribes of Israel which is interesting because evidently the, the first part of the Hebrew Bible like isn't done away with. It still matters. The whole thing is built on that. There were three gates to the east, three to the north, three to the south, three to the west. That's from Ezekiel 48. The walls of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles. So you have the Old Testament and New Testament together providing the foundation of new creation. The angel who walked, or excuse me, who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city. This is an image from Ezekiel 40. To measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square. It's from Ezekiel 48. It was as long as it was wide. He measured the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia, which is about 1,500 miles in length. And as wide and high as it is long. So in other words, it's a cube. Now the cube image comes from 1 Kings, where the Holy of Holies was described as a cube. I know you're dying to know all of this, but just sit in it. All of this matters. (laughs) The angel measured the wall, and it was 200 feet thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundation of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first was jasper. That's from Isaiah 54. The second, sapphire. The third, a gate. The fourth, emerald. The fifth, onyx. The sixth, ruby. The seventh, chrysolite, The eighth, beryl, The ninth, topaz. The tenth, turquoise. I always knew turquoise mattered in the new creation. I always knew. The eleventh, that word. And then the twelfth, amethi- amethyst. <laughs> now the reason we're reading about gold and jewels and stuff is this is the author's way of telling you that there is no poverty in the New Jerusalem wealth is available everywhere like there aren't exclusive neighborhoods there aren't gated communities there aren't pockets of poor people like it's so so overflowing with abundance that it's like well yeah we use gold as pavement I mean that's now again this isn't a literal image but it's a picture Of the inverse of empire where there was oppression where there was slavery where there was scarcity where there were the the whole empire benefited a few and the rest you know were left in injustice here wealth is available everywhere it's not just the property of a scarce few that's the power of this image The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a a single pearl, from Isaiah 54. The great streets of the city were gold, as transparent as glass. I did not see a temple in the city. This is the big surprise, because the Lord God and the Lamb are its temple. So we don't need temple priests or sacrifices. The city does not need light to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And the the Lamb is its lamp the nations will walk by light isaiah 60 and the kings of the earth will bring splendor to it instead of collaborating with the great prostitute earlier in the book now they're bringing their splendor to the worship of god on no day will its gates ever be shut this is isaiah 60 there will be no night there the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it nothing impure will ever enter it ever enter it nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is an image from Exodus, Isaiah, and Daniel. That's chapter chapter 21. We've, uh, We've transformed from a garden to a city. Remember, the first city we met was the city founded by Cain, right? And inhabited by people like Lamech, who committed murder and boasted of it right? And, and Babylon becomes the symbol, the city of Babylon becomes the symbol of human rebellion. Now a city is the place where salvation is most manifest. It's a beautiful image. Then we get an image of a garden in the middle of the city, and shockingly, this goes straight back to Genesis, which is why we read it. The angel showed me the river of the water of life. We met that river in Genesis 2. It's clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the what? Yep, there we go. Genesis, thank you. Bearing 12 crops of fruit, an image from Ezekiel 47, yielding its fruit every month. And this is a great, this is maybe my second favorite line. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the what? So, we're not, so no war. And instead, the reconciliation of all peoples to each other. That's why the gates are never shut. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. And they will what? Right. What's that in reference to? It's the original human vocation. Human beings would rule in God's name, in God's character, with delegated authority. Then the angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, and his angel to show his servants things that must soon take place. Look, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the word of the prophecy written in the scroll. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And When I'd heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who'd been showing them to me. But the angel said, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your fellow prophets. And to all who keep the words of this scroll, worship God. Then he told me, and this is a a different image from Daniel, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this scroll because the time is near. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Okay, vile people, you have permission. Let the one who does right continue to do right. Let the holy person continue to be holy. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside of the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, Jesus. And the one who hears this says, come, Jesus. Let the one who is thirsty also come, and the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of the scroll of anyone and adds anything to them, God will add that person to the plagues described therein. And if anyone takes words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person and he shared the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in the scroll. He who testifies, bless you, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I'm coming soon. And then John adds, amen, come Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Now, you if you were the original audience, had just sat through the reading of this scroll in all one sitting. You're with 20 other people or so, marginalized and and incredibly vulnerable. Buying or tempted to buy the propaganda that Rome is eternal, Rome will never be destroyed, and that you have chosen the wrong side. The entire book was written to give you hope that that is not at all the case. Rome is just another version of Babylon and will be judged like all the Babylons before it. And you will inherit the counter city, the new Jerusalem. And instead of participating with Babylon, you will now be like a bride dressed for husband. And that's how the story ends. I don't know about you, all of the images I had of heaven growing up were things like I'm floating, I have wings, I've learned the harp, Um, we have different sized mansions, and it's like an eternal church service. And, you know, I'm okay with church services, obviously, and it does sound better than the lake of fire, but just kind of barely. You know what I'm saying? Like, (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. And so you have, at least I had, I don't know about you, but I had this disembodied sort of ethereal out there kind of view that, well, to be honest, it was more about avoiding the other place than it was saying yes to this compelling vision. And what I love is that the author doesn't give us any of that. The author instead gives us the concrete fulfillment of all of these little drippings of grace and promise we'd received throughout the whole story in one big package. And instead of being disembodied souls forever and ever, the promise is that we're Embodied souls and resurrected bodies living in a concrete created world new heaven and a new earth With God forever and of all the images to describe The foreverness of life with God a wedding banquet is the one that is chosen Now I've been to some bad weddings. I've officiated some bad weddings I mean, I wasn't personally in a bad wedding. I mean, I'm just saying, like, I, I was there when a bad wedding happened. I love my wife. Make sure that gets out there. Now, <laughs> but have you ever been to a wedding that did it right? And that was so full of just joy, excitement, and celebration? It's one of the purest moments, I think, in human life, collectively together. That that when you really and genuinely can celebrate the union of two coming together and the emotion of the family seeing their children united, the emotion around the the promise of, of new life together. And then you take that image and subtract family dysfunction, Economic injustice, guilt, shame, fear, calories. (laughs) Subtract sadness or mourning or any sense of loss. Subtract any sense of scarcity or jealousy. And that's the image we're given. Have you ever, is there something that you do in your life where you lose all track of time? I mean, Maybe that's what the whole thing turns out to be like. We've just lost track of time. There's no sun, no moon. We don't have any way to measure time anymore. We just exist in this joy. I don't know. To me, it's a far more compelling image than floating around with harps. And notice the direction of salvation. I always thought salvation was about getting us out of here and up. But the whole narrative of the Bible is about God coming down, right? God invading here. I mean, Genesis opens with God walking with the humans in the cool of the day, whatever that means. And then when there's this rupture between heaven and earth, all right, well, here's God in a cloud. Here's God dwelling among his people, with smoke and fire. Here's God in a tent called a tabernacle. Here's God in a temple where he dwells. Now here's Jesus tabernacling God among us. And then here's the Spirit now dwelling in people. Like the whole story is of of God moving to us. Not us climbing our way. Just far more compelling. All the things that we hate about being human, right? The people, philosophers talk about the unbearable weight of being. Just being is hard. Imagine being without that. Right, we can't. So the Bible just pictures these images of celebration and joy and abundance. And Shalom, that's what we talked about last week. And notice, there are three warnings about everything that's impure will be outside the city. I don't know what that means. I thought everyone was tossed in the lake of fire last chapter, but evidently there are more of them. And that's why I don't think we can read the images quite literally. I think the idea is there are images of judgment in the Bible that have to do with destruction. There are images of judgment in the Bible that have to do with exclusion or exile. The idea is the city is incorruptible, never again well, there will be evil done in the city. So what do you guys think? How does that strike you? What questions do you have? If any. Yes, ma'am. Yes, Kevin, go. Thank you, Kevin.
0: So I'm curious about the service, the servants, the idea that we are there serving God. Where yeah. does that work? If it's a banquet and a wedding feast and we're all enjoying our time there, what kind of service and and what are we doing as servants? Oh,
1: such a great question. We're not doing the dishes. That is clear. There are angels for that. I don't know. I don't know. I don't think anything of that. It's got to be good dishwashers. Yes, exactly. Exactly. No, service here means worship. So remember when Paul talks about in Romans like our spiritual act of service. Off your bodies is a living sacrifice. And that is your spiritual act of service or worship. So the idea of service isn't servanthood, although none of us will have egos enough to care about all of that. But the service in view here is the service of worship. That we will be adoring. I mean, imagine that all this stuff that we think could be true actually turns out to be true. I think most of us would be pretty stoked about that. And, and that sort of overflow, right, because the pictures we get in Revelation are of the declaration of worthy is the lamb who was slain and worthy is the one who sits on the throne. will join in, I think, is the service there that's talked about. Great. Great question. Great question. There's another one right there. Look at, look at that side, dominating.
0: So it talks about the second death. Yes. Can you elaborate?
1: Sure. Number one, I'm not an expert on the second death, thankfully. Number two, I think uh, that was a little bit of a joke that only Tim Timmons giggled at. <laughs> uh, first death is physical death. The second death is consignment to whatever judgment. So and th- there, there seems to be, the, in, in Revelation 20, there seems to be two r- resurrections too. So that's an interesting thing we can discuss sometime. But yeah, the first death is the physical one. The second death is the one that you don't come back from. Great question. Anything else? Oh, yes, right here. I know, but it's, it's, for, the on, it's, for, the online, it's for the online people.
0: So this might be a sort of dumb question. But nope. so nope. This is a very heavy book. Um, <laughs> I'm a little confused about the timeline of the battle with the dragon and the casting into the fiery pit, and then maybe he comes back. Yeah. Can you maybe clarify that for me?
1: Oh, absolutely. First of all, um, the clarity on the timing is not the goal of Revelation. The book isn't a linear book, as we talked about. Apocalyptic books. One of the very earliest messages, we talked about how Revelation goes in, cer- like in, in a cycle. It's moving forward, but it's recapitulating. It's telling, it tells three day of the Lord stories in a row, but they're not different stories. They all end the same way. So I, the book, m- this is my view. The young woman that I mentioned earlier would probably disagree with me. But my view of the book is that the book is, is looking at the, the world from a heavenly perspective using the conventions of apocalyptic literature one of those conventions is like, hey, if anyone adds anything to this prophecy, you're toast, right? That's, that wasn't unique to the end of Revelation. That happens other places too. And so there are images that you encounter in other apocalyptic works that, the, that John is just using because that's how you wrote apocalypses. But one of the characteristics of apocalypses is that the time isn't linear. So how does the dragon being cast down from heaven, we always think that happened before anything else happened, but the way John presents it is this happened when Jesus was born. And then you have this other battle and he seems to be in this, he's bound for a thousand years and all of those sorts of things. I don't think the point of the book is to get us to the place where we see these sequentially. I think the point of the book, quite honestly, is to get us to see that there, there is a Babylon now, and a New Jerusalem now, and a Babylon later, and a New Jerusalem later, and that we're constantly picking between the two. Does that make sense? That's a great question. Over my here? Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, 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 yes. Oh, man.
0: Why do you think this is new to most of us in this room? Why? American church, why we've never really gone into studying a lot of the things that you brought up over, all of us have brought up over these next, last few weeks. Why do you think this is new to most of us hearing it? This perspective of revelation is new to us in the American church.
1: That's a great question, and I, I, don't, I don't know other than to say, I think our imaginations have been captured by one particular view that got equated with, this is the only way to understand these books. And because that particular view, and any view can be abused, but because this particular view was American-centric, and and, um, kind of fed into the conspiracy theory sort of calendarizing that we'd all love to have from the Scripture, I think, it, I think it just excited our imagination to the point, and the people who articulate it, I mean, when you study the system, like the system all fits. I mean, it's a puzzle that just goes, whoom. they have an answer for everything. I personally think that, that what's happened is we've discovered other ancient Jewish apocalypses, where we've realized that a lot of, not a lot, but some of Revelation is conventional in the same way that Epistles were conventional in other words there were other letters that people wrote to communities and you can look and say oh Okay, so they share certain Commonalities the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1940 were a huge find in this regard where we realized oh revelation is more of an apocalypse Fitting into that category of literature than we'd originally thought And this isn't I don't know I don't know. There's yeah. a million answers to that question. There is, and I'm, I'm uh, yep, editing, editing, editing. That's Dave. That's a great question. You got one. Or I got one. Go. Right. We got time. all right We do. I tried to end early. It's nice of you. What's that? For the first time in a long time. If you're new, you don't know how good you've got it today. <laughs> you just don't. You just don't know. All right, we'll go. With you.
2: Okay. Um, I've never. Read Revelations. This is my first time hearing most of this. Yes. Yeah. We're, so,
1: we're <laughs> sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Or we're glad. Okay. Congratulations. Either way.
2: Uh, my husband has totally different perspective. Yeah. Um, super conservative, always church Wednesday night, Sunday morning. Totally. He said that they never even really went into Revelations. <laughs> um, I was going back because from the outside looking in, I'm like, okay, there's so much about the positives and how amazing everything's gonna be and all, everything, and there's only like one line or about the people getting left out. Yeah. And from the outside looking in, it's always felt like everything always, everybody always revolves around the line about the people getting left out. That's what everybody's fighting about. Right. And then I'm going back and looking and right before it, I'm like, is this what it's saying where it's like, um, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of the school, Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Right. Let the one who does right continue to do right. If that's right before, then it's, look, I am coming soon. Right. And then there's going to be people that get left out. Right. So to me, it's saying, like, stop judging. That's my job. I'm coming. There will be people getting left out, but stop <laughs> judging. Yeah.
1: And, and the big point is make sure you're not one of them.
2: The, that's why I was like, "Blessed are those who wash their robes." Yeah. To me, that sounds like, "Blessed are those who are self-reflecting and have remorse and are trying to clean up." Yeah. Okay, that's what. Well, it's robes an is. <laughs> image.
1: It's an image of sharing in the sacrifice of Jesus. Wash their robes. Is? Yes, okay. all throughout the book. You bet. Okay. No, I think so. I think you bring up a great, great point. And 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 this, this is what I, I've tried to talk us out of. So we view the book as almost exclusively future, almost exclusively literal, and almost exclusively linear. And I don't know that the book comes to us that way. The book would have made sense to its original audience. They would have understood its imagery and its symbols. And I think they would have understood that the invitation wasn't to worry about anybody else, but instead to worry about being faithfully enduring during all of this that was about to happen with the Roman Empire and the persecution that we were about to engage in with the church. So I think if, if we naturally go to the then, we've missed the point of the book, which is we've got Babylon's all around us. And here we are, supposed to be the people of the New Jerusalem to come, and we're choosing between the value systems. Right? That the culture of Babylon is a culture of death and exploitation. The culture of New Jerusalem is a culture of abundance and blessing and sharing. And that we're constantly engaging between those two realities that exist now, but find fulfillment later. So I think you're absolutely on to something. Okay. You ready? These are great. Yes. I don't know if I'm ready.
0: All right. Uh, I have a question about the nature of free will. Whoa! In the New Jerusalem, so the way that I understood evil, evil wasn't necessarily a thing in of itself, rather than the result of beings with free will choosing
1: yeah. evil. Yeah,
0: um, and yeah. the way I understood, you know, how could there be evil? as well, God wanted free will so that He would have these mutually, you know, um, like desiring relationships, like people who chose God. Instead of, you know, not shooting. him. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, But in the New Jerusalem, it's very, it seems clear to me that the implication is there is no more evil. Therefore, no one is choosing evil anymore. Right. So my question is, is that because there is no more free will, which I thought was an essential component of that relationship? Or there is free will, but no one is choosing evil anymore. Yeah. And if that's the case then why did God create? If it's possible for free will and evil to uh, yeah. not, for yep. there to be free will but no evil, yep. why wasn't it always that way?
1: Yes. In that place? Genius yeah. question. Big answer, I don't know. <laughs> I'm with you that free will seems to be an absolutely essential element of, of what it is to be made in the image of God. And if we're going to continue to reign with him, and we're recovering the original vocation, absolutely that means we still are choosing and exercising power in the world. I don't know if that's because we simply choose to. If you've ever been around somebody who used to be overweight and now is super fit, like my friends, um, (laughs) there is something that's fundamentally shifted in their desires, right? They just don't, it's not that they're I mean, th- there's some people like this. They, they don't want the bad food. They're just done with it because they've tasted something much better. Is that, is that what happens, the transformation of our desire, when we actually see that it's all real and true? I don't know. And it doesn't specifically say. I would, I would argue, though, that the, the thing that is consistent throughout the whole story is the agency of humans. God never wants puppets, ever. So how, how, does, how is evil removed if humans can still choose freely? I don't know. There are some who think, and I think this is pushing the metaphor and the symbolism way too far, but the idea of the open gates suggests, and there are some present active Greek verbs that seem to suggest there's movement between the outside and the inside, but that the the people outside can repent and wash their robes and come in. And could the people inside choose... To go outside, I don't know. Great question.
0: There was a question on the text line. I'll just let and then I'll. Do you have one over there?
1: Yeah. Okay. Go with that one. Man, you guys are genius. This is so fun. Okay. um, So the uh, traditional idea of hell has always made me very uncomfortable. Yes. So I'm very excited to have like a reconsideration of it. Um, But I think one of the things that I've always thought is that
2: every human being has an eternal soul and will spend. Eternity, either in heaven or in hell. Right. And so now I'm questioning: Is the idea of an eternal soul? Because we also have images of destruction. So is that a biblical idea of an eternal oh, soul? Oh yes. Or is that something that was born out of what a
1: genius question? All right. So why does God kick the the man and the woman out of the Garden of Eden in Genesis? What is he worried they will eat from? Do you remember? Tree of life. Kevin. <laughs> hey. Don't give me a mic if That's you don't want me.
2: Cheating. To we, we he don't says have to- he doesn't have time he for
0: does. these reciprocal questions. Just we
1: have reciprocal question time. Uh, answer. Answer. So, so the idea is. There's one in every room, man. I was going to give the mic to Timmons, but that we would be all. Uh, Susie, can you can you do something over there? So he he kicks them exiles them out from the garden because the text says they might eat of the tree of life and live forever the implication is that they weren't going to live forever ever without that so the eternal soul thing is kind of an aristotelian philosophy greek idea and that's why i think the tree of life features prominently now is that symbolic or lit- I, you know we can have all sorts of debates about that but I think you're on to something. And that's why when we do Theology of Hell in a Bar, which we're going to do since all of you were like, yes, um, we're going to do Theology of Hell in a Bar. We're going to talk about the fact that um, I, I don't think the Bible teaches we have an eternal soul. And that, and that um, what God does is he just simply withdraws the promise of new life and lets things take their course naturally. So it's the idea in Romans 1 that God gives them over, right? So much of the consequences of sin are the sin. And so God, God's mercy is when he intervenes. God's justice is often when he just says, okay, if that's what you want, you can have it. And we turn into many versions of Schmeagol from Lord of the Rings, (laughs) treasuring, you know, our alcohol, our food, or whatever. Great, 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 great. Okay, couple more, yes, yes, right here. What time is it, Mike? It's 10.01 Kev, we got right. plenty of time. Okay.
2: Um, I'm nervous. So, uh, thanks,
1: thanks. Um, who, who hasn't done wrong? Who hasn't done evil? Even, even
2: consistently, even believers? Um, you know, is there like a scale? of like you're out if you've done this much or yeah. if you haven't prayed romans road you're out yes like, yes
1: what a great question
2: i mean that just makes me so uncomfortable to think about because i just yeah there's a lot to that but
0: oh i love it it's the irony of the romans road right there right there into your right yeah that's right? been destroyed man
1: yeah yeah i mean you can come up here kev I like that. That was it, This that is was the insane. last Sunday, so that yeah. I, thought I'd I Yeah, 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 yeah. Harass you. This a is little. what the confab is in the in the lounge afterwards. <laughs> just, now, d-
0: just wait for the podcast this week. This is
1: glorious. This is such a great question. That's what we're gonna do theology of hell in a bar. So I encourage you to come to that because we'll do we'll explore it more fully. But here's the interesting thing we never had time to get to. The there there are two vice lists listed in Revelation twenty-one and twenty-two. The, you know, magic arts, the sexually immoral, the dogs. The, I mean, he has two vice lists. And if you, if you take those terms, you can actually trace them through the whole book and show how they were infecting the church and that they were characteristics of the Roman Empire, or any empire for that matter. Because we think magic arts and we're thinking Harry Potter. <laughs> That's not what that, that means. Or even cowards. Oh! That word doesn't mean people who are nervous and afraid. That means people who are uh, committing adultery. And so the whole image is that the people on the outside are people in the church who have not come out of Babylon. That's the warning. This isn't the great host of unbelievers. The whole warning is for the people in the church who are tolerating the worship of of Rome and the oppression therein, and that those are the ones who are the the ones that are still outside, that they've participated in the sins of empire as the whole story's gone along. Which, you know, because we want to make it about other people. You know, what happens to those people? It's not the point of the book. The whole point of the book was come out of Babylon because it's doomed to destruction. What's What's that look like today? Oh man. Okay, we'll end with this. If um, you guys wanna come up. What's that look like today? Well, we began to paint a picture of it when we started talking about how there is a, there is a culture of empire that exists today, right? The culture of consumption, the culture of self-aggrandizement, the culture of pushing people down so that I have to get mine, the culture of, of saying that the world exists for me and only me and my preferences, right? That, that is part of what Babylon has always represented. The collective hubris of human beings who refuse to place God at the center of their collective life and then engage in practices to the harm of other people. So one of the ways it looks, at least for me, is I, and and we've talked about this as we've gone on. Where do I participate in the practices of Babylon? Where do I participate in exerting power over? Where do I um, participate in unjust economic practices that take advantage of people that I'm not even aware of? Where do I participate in um, the subjugation of other races or other nations, or how do I participate? and prejudice and bias i mean all of those things how do i worship whatever caesar our world says is in power which for us the caesar is the market the almighty market that determines our well-being right so for me like one of the ways of living a very counter imperial life is giving money away because for me money represents babylon i love it i want it pre- represents security it represents advancement it represents all these things And so to live a New Jerusalem kind of lifestyle is to say that I don't live in in scarcity. And so I can be generous and blessed. I mean, that's just one concrete example. But the point is that a church becomes shaped by the value system of New Jerusalem. And that is something we do and practice every week. That's part of the reason why we go to the table, part of the reason why we write down prayers, part of the reason we practice baptism, part of the reason we practice generosity, all of that. Is a picture of living the anti-Babylon kind of life. And that's the invitation for us. So let me pray. We'll dive in. Lord Jesus, we bless you and we honor you. And Lord, this is a whole heck of a lot of stuff. To wrestle through this, oh, is uncomfortable and it's provocative. And yet, Lord, we know you, you do some of your best work in those spaces that we so often try to avoid. So help us to get a clear picture of Jesus. Help us to get a clear picture of what it means to be faithful as a church. Help us to get a clear picture of what's really important in the world and just what's not. And most of all, God, would you bless us with your spirit. Call us again and again out of Babylon and into your kingdom, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen.